Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams, and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well, plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Achtung, achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways to Make You Talk with me, Al Murray, and James Holland, your Second World War podcast with all your, for all your Second World War needs. We've been, we've been sort of, uh, we've been, it's been an interesting little run, isn't it, hasn't it, Jim? Because we've been doing sort of specials for anniversaries, because after all, this is, this is, you know, this is the year that Almost Germany... It, it, could you even say that July 1943 is the month? Yeah, it's the month Germany has definitely lost the Second World War. It's husky. It's Kursk. It's the deposition of Mussolini, isn't it? Yeah, on the- and it's Hamburg. Uh, the writing couldn't be any more clearly on the wall. Um, and, and the, and the lead up to that, well, or, or is it? Is it those three months? Even you know, May, June, July. Not much happens in June, but 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 yeah. you know, May defeat of the Wolf Packs. Yeah, end in Tunisia. Catastrophe. Yeah. For, for Germany, it's catastrophe for Italy, but it's catastrophe for Germany too. Yep. You know, it is well, absolutely. It, it is it is the surrender in Tunis, in Cap Bon, on the thirteenth of May, yeah, nineteen forty three. That that absolutely is in the nail of the coffin for the Italian war effort, with, with all the knock on effects that has for Germany, and also on the Eastern Front, the impotence of the Kursk offensive. Yes. It's just Germany is. I, I, do you know what? I'm I'm so struck by that. It's it, it's an impotent gesture that fails. When we talked about Kursk, it, it it kicked up. I mean, what's been interesting about talking about these big sort of these sort of tentpole things is each one kicks up a sort of cloud of old argument around it. So you know, when we talked about Kursk, we we, we set off all the people who who love the Wehrmacht basically. Or love the hair. I mean, one or the other, or or all three, or or or, or all of it, right? I mean, I, I don't know. I, I I can't get my head around it anyway. Um, and then when you talk, about, and then when you talk about area bombing, you necessarily kick up the moral questions, the conundrums at the heart of the area bombing campaign, its actual intentions and its actual effects. In that conversation about Hamburg, I, I, I came away from it really thinking bomber commands designed to do one thing, and that's create a firestorm in Hamburg, and it does it. It's like the way the bouncing bomb is designed to smack, uh, breach dams. Bomber command, uh, it, as a bomber stream, is designed to cause a firestorm in Hamburg of all pla- of all places. You know, the, the, it's not it's not that it's not that they picked a city out of a hat. It's not that um, you know they they'd worked their way through their targets and they had to go for somewhere like Dre- like you could argue about Dresden. That you know that Dresden is once you although obviously t- that's different. Um, because it's a different stage of the war. I just, the more you think about it, the more that feel, that raid feels fated. It's a thing bomber commander destined to do, designed to do, and pull off. Well, well, that's what, the interesting is, it's it's it's, it's the culmination, isn't it? It's the, it's the culmination of two years of build-up. So when I was writing Big Week, I was arguing that, that, that 
Harris takes over in February 1942, and it takes him 13 months to get to a point where he feels ready to launch his all-out offensive. But actually, it's been longer than that. That's that's from when he takes over. But actually, it's been two years in the coming. It's been from the it's from basically from the Butt Report, isn't it? Butt Report is, I think, June nineteen forty one or is it July? I can't remember. But it's a high summer of of nineteen forty one. And the Butt Report it's it's this report into the accuracy of bombing. And so much has been invested by the British in in strategic bombing. And what they discover is that 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 bomber command can't hit a barn. You, barn door at five yards you know i mean literally one in 30 bombs is getting within five miles of of its target something like that i mean it's it's, it's that's not the precise figure but it but statistics but it's it's a really bad really damning report and the numbers of losses are huge what they don't have is they don't have the right navigation aids they don't have the right tactics they don't have they, they don't have the right machines and the weather the weather militates against doing it anyway that even if you have the because later in the war even when they have got the right kit there's still what six days in june that it that a bomber belonged with the equipment you've got i know i did for when our cricket match was cancelled yet again on saturday everyone's going this has been the worst summer ever i went yeah not as bad as 1944 mate <laughs> <laughs> and our and Matt Williams, who's our fixture secretary, rather rather gamely came back and said, um, said, yeah, I wasn't around for that one, so it doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> so it was very good. The British establishment is an interesting thing, isn't it? Because because obviously everyone in Bomber Command knew that, but what you need is a report to say so, so that you can take official action. Well, I I think I think it's more nuanced than that. I think it's more news now because I, th- I think what's going on is is that they're sort of going. We've gone down this route. We have to just keep going, even though we're mounting losses, even though the the the, the reports are are of act. And what the butt report tells you is is the opposite of what the crews are saying. So so the, the, the air chiefs can just get well. The crews are saying they've they've hit it really accurately. Well, of course but they the are. The combination of, of of course they are. But 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 the combination of PR is because because you're you're down this route and there is this terrible kind of sinking feeling that you might have just got this entirely wrong. So so when when the butt report comes out there's 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 a massive fork in the road. One is okay, we pull back from this and this is not the way to do it or we double down. And you know, Churchill is a big advocate of it. He's he's already supported um, indiscriminate bombing in from October 1940, which stopped conveniently in time with the with the start of the Blitz um, on on Britain. And and they do double down and they go, okay, right. So w- we we need to kind of get this right. So the, the the boffins kind of go away and 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 work even harder at doing their new navigational aids and people in Malvern developing stuff and people at port and down and all these other laboratories scattered all over britain uh, and and government scientists and ministry scientists and and so on and so forth at that moment they go okay well clearly the answer is not to try and hit factories it's it's to kill lots of germans kill the workers in the factories and that's the point we were making this this is a moment and where you're saying actually the main aim is to kill Germans with the collateral being you might hit a factory rather than hitting a factory with the collateral is you might kill Germans. But once they've perfected that later in the war, yeah, yes. they're saying to themselves, the thing we originally set out to do, because what they originally set out to do is like get the disaffected population to overthrow a government, to create, a, to create November 1918 in Germany again. That basically you, you, you blockade, starve, the population... Civil breakdown. Civil breakdown, revolution. Right, and that overthrows the Nazi government, and that ends the war. 
right? But later, in, late after, once they've got area bombing actually working, they're all writing to each other going, well, the Americans particularly are saying, this ain't going to work. Nazi control means that people are just never going to, you know, you're up, it's a totalitarian government. So you just, it isn't going to, that isn't going to work. So, so the Americans are still, so the Americans are still trying to hit specific industrial targets as a result, but they can't hit them. They cannot hit them because it's just so difficult because even in daylight, the weather doesn't deliver you enough window of opportunity to act bomb accurately. You know, they've, t- but, but by, you know, they take on H2S themselves. They get their own H2S in because, because they know they're blind bombing in daylight, because they know in the end, even in daylight, they cannot find what they're looking for. And, and at the same time, admitting to themselves, we're never going to, we're not, we're not going to trigger this social collapse revolution thing. That's impossible because we're up against the Nazis. So in the end, the Americans are, are blind bombing as well, but can't, but can't admit it. And in the European theatre, can't admit it, right? And can't admit that they're trying to kill civilians. But in, but in Japan, they are trying to kill civilians. And, you know, the, the, the sort of rationalisation they make for um, bo- the, the area bombing of Tokyo, the fire bombing of Tokyo, is, well, it's full of workshops. You know, that part of Tokyo is where a lot of industrial production happens because... <laughs> what? All of it? <laughs> exactly. You know, because it's all lots of little workshops of people making parts that then... That, I, I know, but I love that kind of, that area of Tokyo. I mean, what you yeah, mean I know, is I know. all of Tokyo. I know, I know, I know. Because the whole thing I mean, what, is destroyed. But what was really... I mean, what, I th- you know, I think it's really interesting. So the Americans are looking at this slightly differently. You know, they've got a committee of historians, which I think is absolutely amazing, who who write a report about, you know, and the, uh, and this is all. Um, I mean, the, the Richard Overy's book about the bombing war is really fascinating for this. He says, you know, these there's these historians who say the existence of Nazi control gives no encouragement to the supposition that any political upheaval can be anticipated in Germany in the near future. And they're right. They turn out to be right. And when are they saying is, that? Uh, 1943. See, so, so I think I think I think the moment of crisis for for, for bomber command comes in the summer of 1941 with the Butt Report. Yeah, and it takes them two years to get to the point where they've. It takes them a few months to kind of go deep breath. Okay, let's double down and let's really yeah. go for it. But let's not beat yeah. about the bush anymore. Let, let's 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 go for the civilians. The zenith of that policy comes with Hamburg at the end of July 1943. Yeah. Whereas the Americans obviously are coming to a little bit later and. Yeah. Um, the Eighth Air Force is only formed in you know early part of 1942 when they come over, and I think the first raid is August. I think in over France yep. in in 1942, and then it's effectively it does keep going, but it's effectively dismantled for the Mediterranean because that's where you know when it, when it becomes a shift to torch and, and yep. the invasion of Northwest Africa in November 1942, and so a lot of the stuff that's been stockpiled for Eighth Air Force then gets moved to the Mediterranean. So it takes time to build up, and their crisis moment comes in the second half of 1943. You yeah. know, when they haven't got the long-range bomber, they haven't got the long-range, long-range escort, escort yeah. uh, that's going to get them to these targets. And they're also struggling with crippling losses, just as Bomber Command was. And they're also struggling with with accuracy issues. I think that moment comes then. And, and what you see in the next six months is, in the first half of 1944, is you're getting to the point where Bomber Command and the 8th Air Force, there's no difference really in terms of accuracy, whether they're bombing no. at night or by daylight. No. No, it's the same thing. And, and I think the, the the criticism about 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 Harris is okay. Up to that point, 
you know, you needed to hit civilians because you couldn't pinpoint factories. That is not the case by the summer of 1944, but you're still kind of, you know, destroying wholesale um, towns and cities, whether it be Dresden or Fort Syme or Würzburg or whatever, yeah. into 1945. But but again, by that stage, the situation has changed because it's this kind of, this, this rising fury from the Allied point of view that the Germans have still got skin in the game and they're still fighting when they should have surrendered. You know, just stop fighting and we'll give up bombing. Yeah. You know, and I'm not, I'm, you know, you can understand why they would be coming at that point. But but I agree with you that the, the summer of 1943 is, is the kind of, from, from Bomber Command's point of view, this is what it's been leading to. Well, and uh, yeah, exactly. And it's almost never as, as never as effective again. Or the, the shock of, because in a way, I mean, you know, it's a shock and awe operation too, isn't it? The idea is you create the spectacular moment and the, the enemy, the enemy go, all right, we're, we're not interested. I mean, what's interesting is also in that period for the Eighth Air Force is they they do adapt B-17s for night bombing and they have a think about it because they know daylight bombing isn't working. Schweinfurt Regensburg raids, oh, they're, they're a disaster. There's no other. There's no no other way of looking at it. Harris is always concerned with that that balance with his crews because, as you say, the crews the crews before the butt reports going. Well, of course we hit. Of course we hit the um you know the cutlery factory in Essen. Of course we did. Absolutely, absolutely, Skipper, one hundred percent. Harris knows well enough that you 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 can't forswear too much of that. You've got to let the men think they're doing a good job. And the Americans have got, they know that the morale's sucking out of it. And the other thing that, of course, happens in 8th Air Force is, you know, when they have their change of command, that's when all the stuff comes online. The, the, there's more, the, it's so the often the case, though, isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't it? And, and, you know, that happens again and again in the Second World War, is that, uh, particularly on the Allied side. Well, I mean, if you think about Monty and Alex turning up in August 1942, just as the Shermans arrive and just as the uh, stuff, more stuff six-pounders and yeah, yeah, all the yeah. rest of it. But, I mean, it is interesting, though, because, because the, Americans, the Americans are essentially... By the end of the war, saying, "Yeah, we are just trying to. We are dehousing, and we know what dehousing means. It means killing civilians. We know that that's what that means." In the European theatre, that's what they're saying. They're admitting it to themselves. In the end, in the official history, the American official history does go, "Yeah, that is what we're doing, actually." Whereas the British, right from the start, have been going, "We are trying to kill people." And there's this that the tonal difference, and and the American essential pretense that it's precision bombing. They stick with in the way they talk about what they're doing. And of course, you can present it to that if, it, if you're doing it in daylight. You could, it look, look, we can see where we're going. Whereas we know perfectly well that, that, that the weather over Europe never offers you the ideal day, let alone the ideal night. So, so I mean, it's, it's, re, it, it's fascinating. And, it, and, it, and yet, it, you know, when you come to big week, when the Americans decide, actually what we're going to do is we're going to provoke a battle with the Luftwaffe. We're not going to, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna make it look like we're trying to destroy uh, industry, but uh, factories. But actually, and of course, what they don't do is, you know, Goering after the war goes, well, why didn't you bomb the aero engine plants? That was the thing you should have concentrated on. Airframes, yeah, whatever, you, you should have gone for the engine plants because they're less dispersed, they're an easier target. And why did that never occur to you? And the Americans after the war are like, oh yeah, yeah, gee, didn't gee didn't think of that. But but you know that the decision is to provoke a battle. That what you're using strategic bombing for is to break the Luftwaffe rather than to do the thing it's supposedly intended to do, which is disrupt German industry, destroy infrastructure, and you know shows that that the people on the ground are completely incidental to the American uh, bombing campaign, and they're gonna they're gonna try and kill them if they can. But it's about defeating the Luftwaffe. And I think it's a given that Hamburg has already caused that shift we talked about last time, that the air, aircraft production turns to 45%, 45.5% of German production as a result of the Hamburg raids and anti-aircraft production shifts. 
and men are sucked out of um, other possible postings, drawn into anti-aircraft defence. You've got, pe- but also what you've got is levies of people brought into anti-aircraft defence who are too young, who aren't properly trained. So the anti-aircraft defence declines, even as the Germans are producing more. And, and you know, get these all these conundrums. Even as they're producing more fighters, their fighter pilot hours are declining rapidly from fifty to twenty hours. You know, there's all these things going on that are that are basically sucking the German reservoir dry. For, capa- for capacity to resist and at the same time diverting resources from all the fronts where really they need to be doing their fighting. That If it, Hitler is convinced that the point of decision in Europe will be when the Allies decide to invade Western Europe, and that's the moment he can strike a blow that will reverse the direction of the war and you know something will come up, Frederick the Great style. But he, he can't do it because he can't divert the resources because he's protecting the Reich. When people say, oh, the strategic bombing campaign it's a kind of it's a sideshow it's not effective the handbrake it puts on puts on everything for the germans is enormous arguably completely decisive but not necessarily the way it's intended is the is the thing exactly totally totally agree with you so i i i messaged you over the weekend and said i've had a thought about about hamburg so i've actually had three um <laughs> oh, da- dangerous only three no more three thoughts um, before so, lunch <laughs> so the the first one is 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 just occurred to me a moment ago and that's about this this thing about the about about the increase in the number of anti-aircraft defenses um in germany which are huge i mean you know we're, we're talking fifteen thousand anti-aircraft guns just in germany over a million men manning those that's a, that's a hell of a lot. Okay, some of them are boys, some of them are girls, whatever. Even in a totalitarian state like Nazi Germany, you have to look after your own. And one of the one of the one of the problems that the British have in in the summer of 1944, when they've got this sort of manpower crisis for for the infantry battalion, is they're going to they're going to get them all out of the anti aircraft batteries and retrain them as infantry. That's Brooke's plan. Brooke being the chief of the Imperial General Staff, the most senior military figure. That's what they're planning to do. And then the V one stock reining in. And they have to scrap that because you have to have anti-aircraft defences when you're under attack at home, even though your anti-aircraft gunners are going to be doing diddly squat against a V1. But this is why the Corps of Artillery is bigger than the Royal Navy. It's not just because artillery is the you know the mother of the battlefield and all that and all that sort of stuff. But it's my because, point is, yeah. you have to defend your home, well, HIMAT, patria, well, 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 turf, whatever. Well, and if your if your entire rhetorical frame is that it's about the fatherland. And nationhood yeah. and home and all that and, all, and yeah and all that you know and that you've got to do it that applies to you know democracies equally but if you're really if you're if the, if this is what you're and obviously this this operates as a very strong lever for German morale questions is that you know when you're on the front in some god awful place in Italy in the in the winter on a picket trying to keep Kiwis out or whatever you're told they're kit they're bombing Hamburg they're bombing your homeland they're bombing where your family's from and it's used as a you know that this is the other the other byproduct of the of the bomber offensive after all is it's a fabulous motivator for your german soldier in a foxhole isn't it it's the it's, it's the other peculiar byproduct yes that's a, that's a yes that's the the flip side you still have to you have to defend the homeland and yeah. you have to defend it really well and and just just think what 43% of your of your war budget going to aircraft production means and, and and air defense means i mean that's such a huge amount yeah that's such a huge proportion and why is that the case because that is what is perceived by the nazi high command as the most serious threat 
Yes. It's, it's just—it's indisputable. Yeah. You you cannot argue against that. You can say what you like about the blood being spilled on the Eastern Front, but you cannot argue against how the German high command, the Nazi high command, are perceiving this. Well, and how do the how does the British government perceive the Battle of Britain in 1940? Right, Air, aerial defence is absolutely central, which is why in 1944 you end up with tanks with aero in British with Merlin engines in them, meteor engines. Because you've made so many, because you've made too many, because because right. you've, you've or thrown, repaired you've, too many, yeah, or repaired too many. You've thrown you've thrown everything at the prob the issue of air defence. It's how you end up with with fighter rhubarbs in 1941. With you know, fighter command don't know what to do because fighter command's so enormous. Because air defence has become become your complete priority. You know, you, you think of all those anti aircraft guns, and obviously they're not all um, 88 millimeter. Um, Guns. No, some are bigger than that. One hundred and twenty. Well, well, exactly. So think, <laughs> think of how useful they'd be. <laughs> yeah, um, on Normandy, in Normandy, or or repelling Bagratine or whatever the following year. I mean, at the same, at the same time as Normandy. I mean, it's it's these are these are aren't the immediate designed consequences of of the bomber offensive because the bomber offensive was conceived in terms of tying up industry, hampering industry. But the fact is, you have completely hampered the German war effort and tied up the German war effort and diverted it, um, uh, in you know, into into into. You've distorted it beyond uh, beyond its original intentions. And if you're if you're diverting your enemy from what his plans are, you're winning. Um, let's take a quick break. Yeah, and then I've got to give you my. And then you got point. your other thoughts. You got your other thoughts, Jim. Oh, I've got my thoughts. Yeah, <laughs> we'll see you in a second. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. But that's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to Weird Ways of Making You Talk, where uh, James Holland has had three thoughts but only managed to get one of them out. Well, no, it was sort of two because the second one was was the was the fighter aircraft one and and the and the, the proportion and 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 heating and and very strongly linked to it. So maybe actually it is all just one thought. The thought I was gonna, that I came up with um over the weekend while I was sort of mulling over this, and I've really been thinking about this whole Hamburg thing and strategic air yeah <laughs> air war more than most of the subjects that we talk about. I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> after we finished talking about them, which is yeah. why we're still talking about them, inevitably it goes back to it goes back to Italy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, the more I think about it, the more I think what a ridiculous decision it was for the Germans to abandon the Foggia airfields. So, for those who haven't come across again, three fifths of the way, two thirds of the way down the, the leg of Italy, on the eastern side, on the Adriatic side, just inland, is one of the very rare bits of, of flat ground in. Italy. So the main flat areas are just north of Naples, is a little bit um, north of the River Po, which is as you come at the, the, the Apennine sort of arches across from the kind of you know the, out of the Alps, out of the kind of northwest of Italy, down the whole main boot of boot of Italy, and so just north of that, between between that as it kind of turns kind of westwards, the Mount Apennines turn westward. There's the Po Valley, which is quite wide, and you know that's where. You know all those towns are like 
uh, Reggio Emilia and all these sort of places. And actually, Bologna itself lies right on the plain and Milan's in it and all the rest of it, Piacenza. They're all in the Po Valley. So that's the, that, but that's right up in the north. The other bit is two-thirds of the way down on the Asiatic side, and, and at the heart of it is Foggia. And Foggia has a very early airfield there, but all around there is a sequence of, uh, yeah, there's loads of loads of airfields. There's, there's Amendola and there's Lucera and there's various others. And actually by the, by the beginning of 1944, there's 13 of them. If you also include some Bari, um, which is a bit further down. So there's loads of them, but the, the decisions is to, there's enough troops to kind of be able to respond to, um, the Allies landing in the toe just enough to do demolitions and hold them up because it's very mountainous in the in the toe of the boot, and there's enough troops to kind of resist the Salerno landings, which is just south of of, of Naples on the Tyrrhenian coast, which is the western side. There isn't enough to do look after Puglia, which is that kind of southeastern side, which includes Brindisi, Taranto, Bari, but also Foggia. That's where all these airfields are. So yeah. they just abandon them without a fight. Yeah, but Jim, uh, Kesselring's a genius. <clears throat> well, he is a genius, obviously. But he somehow has a reputation. Yeah, he's, the- a, he's shit. He's really, I really think he's one of the most overrated German, German generals ever. Yeah, I really do. I think he's overrated. But my point is this. <laughs> Why do they abandon those airfields? It's now September. Well, because... It's, because it's the- five weeks since Hamburg. A month yeah. since Hamburg. Why yeah. are they abandoning that? Because they because they haven't got enough. Because where are all where are most of those planes gone? Well, they're back in 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 Germany defending the Reich, or they're in northern Italy defending the southern part of the Reich. Yeah, but yeah. they're defending the Reich. That is yeah, exactly yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. So there is there are still forces. There are still fighter forces on the on the again on the west coast to def- yeah. you know to to air defence against the invasion. Not enough, so they're getting slaughtered. Yeah, and the rest are all moving off. So they abandon the whole of. The most important bit of ground in southern Italy, south of Rome, for the Germans, without question, is the Foggia airfields, yeah. that, that area, because you get that plus one, minus one. Yeah. You gain it and you deny it to your enemy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or you lose it and give it to your enemy. Because they're in a spin still because of Hamburg. They're going, ah, we've got to, we've got to well, do something. We've got to sp- kind of- and, they're, and they're in a spin because of Tunisia and because of Kursk. And- and Sicily and everything, because because they they basically every decision they make is is essentially, you know, every decision they make is affected by everything else that's going on. So so yeah, isn't but it? So so it, it so, absolutely is in your kind of list of war priorities. Your number one priority is to look after your homeland, and that's why they're all going. Shit, we you know we need to kind of increase fighter production to three thousand a month, and, and we need to we need to do this, and we need to do that, and we need to you know they're, they're careering around, desperately trying to kind of make up for lost time, overhauling their air defence system, as a direct consequence, not just of the Ruhr, but primarily of what's happened to the catastrophe of Hamburg, and it, and it occurred to me that, that that of the many tentacles, the many effects of Hamburg, it's even reaching strategy for the campaign in Italy. I mean, given what uh, they're saying at the top level in uh, in the Nazi government, you know, we can't have this happen again. Well, they do this six more times just we're finished. That makes you've perfect choice, sense. You? And, and you've got to, whether you're doing the fatherland rhetoric or not, because if they do destroy six of your major cities... You, you are self-evidently finished. 
Yeah, exactly, exactly. And yet, then what happens is... You know, it's great It's great to defend Puglia, <laughs> but on a list of kind of priorities, one to ten... Yeah. Well, it's and especially of, it's 11, isn't it? Well, and especially as you think the Italians are unreliable, the northern bit of Italy is the bit you want because that's where the industry is. You're not really that bothered about the southern bit. You you think, well, what we'll do is we'll make them bleed for this, which is what they're all saying. Yes, yes, and, really- one, and, and the whole point about about saving Italy more than anything else is a because you know it's an affront, so it's embarrassing to have to give it up. But but yeah. the main the main reason is to defend the southern boundaries of the Reich and protect Plesti. If you the best way to protect Plesti is to hang on to Foggia. Yeah. If you're not going to hang on to Foggia and those airfields around there, there is no point in fighting south of Rome at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is literally yeah. no point. Yeah. I'm now slightly regretting I haven't sold that a bit stronger in the book. But the... But the <laughs> well, I'm doing the audio book next week. So it's too late. The- Do you want to just make up a bit? <laughs> MB square brackets. Yeah, it could be one Subsequent to this audio recording, Jim has told me... <laughs> you know, I think... Jim undersold this a little. I could say that as I'm reading it. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, <laughs> just imagine if you did that. It'd be really well, funny. you know. Well, well, well. One one time I was in for an audio. One of your one of it was one of your or was it one of my books? I can't remember. No, it was uh, one of mine. I think. And you you said it wasn't the second battalion or it wasn't the first second, second brigade. No, no, no. It wasn't that. Yeah. No, it wasn't that. It's someone else had been in the day before. Some some rock star who'd been given his ghost written memoir to read, and he's and he's basically going, "This is all bollocks." I didn't, I didn't <laughs> And so the audiobook <laughs> consists of him reading a thing and then going, well, that's not quite right. And, and so the audiobook. <laughs> so, so there's precedent, Jim. That's really funny. That's really, really funny. <laughs> I mean, it, it, what I think what's really interesting is, though, is that one of the problems with the way people look at this is they slice bits off, don't they? You've got to sit slice- You've got to see in the round. If you slice Kursk off, even people who even people who are like, you know, because when we talked about Kursk, there were enough people going, well, if they'd done it in April, it would have worked. And you think, well, if they prioritised the Panthers for April, it would have worked. And you sort of think, well, what, but what, what do you mean by work? Because because after all, every offensive the Germans ever do costs them the really dearly. Then they're exhausted afterwards. And, and, and then what? Against do you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking, you know, I'm thinking, forget the war in the West. Summer 43, Germany's End. That's a book, isn't it? Game yeah, over. May, May, Summer May, 43, May. game over. <laughs> game over for Adolf Hitler. <laughs> but, it, but, but it's really interesting, isn't it? Because, because you know, even... Slam even dunk the, for the Allies. Even those, even those people who are like that will concede that, that, you know, Hitler calls off Kursk because of Sicily. Well, they'll, they'll concede that, right? Well... Then, then it's not that good an idea. If if an event, <laughs> it's a shit idea. Well, it's obviously it's a shit idea, but it's not that it's not that good an idea if an event, you know, a thousand miles away, make, makes you go, oh shit. Well, we have to cancel that then. And if there are, if the Germans are off strategically offering hostages like that to their enemy, you know, we'll do a thing, but only if something else doesn't happen or something else works out. But, but, but and, yes, know. yes, but but suddenly you've got this huge sea change because everything. It's it offensive action is it forget it. It's it's yeah. done. Yeah, so this is all about it, this yeah. is now the great defense this is this is this is the great entrenchment that follows yeah. so 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 from from the invasion of Italy onwards it's just about hanging in there hoping for miracle weapons hoping something hoping 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 something will happen but it's all over but this brings me to um, I've been reading uh someone recommended Ben Ben Shepherd's book Hitler Soldiers oh, yes. of the German Army of the Third Reich right and and this this again this sort of ping this pings off what we were talking about a couple of weeks ago and and, and all those people were upset 
one of the things he talks about is, and it's really interesting this, because he says that what you what happens in the in the German army, and it's a book about the German army, right? It's not about the SS, it's not about the Wehrmacht, it's about the Heer, right? And he says that what happens is because of wastage and churn in the German army, your new officers coming through, that there's a social change in the German army. The German army at the start of the war, the officer class is the is your Prussian, you know, your Prussian t- stereotypical officer. That that's who they've drawn from. They've all been they've all been to a more traditional interwar staff or the radicalized but Prussian model staff college. They've all come through that. By the time it's by 1943, those people have have either gone up through the ranks or are dead or injured or are no good to you, right? So what you get is a new wave of officers come through who are drawn from all parts of German society, right? There were no working class officers before the war in, in, uh, in Germany, right? And what happens is, is in the German army, what happens is you get this, a new kind of, a new kind of guy comes through, right? Who is, who is part of the national socialist, um, you know, package, because after all, the idea is to in- involve ordinary people in the fate of the nation, right? So they're all radicalized. They're all Nazi people who come through. And that's who's going into the army in '43, rather than your Prussian officer. Which, and he says, he says, Hermann Goering, the Hermann Goering division is responsible for all sorts of atrocities in Italy, right? But you can't say that's because they were brutalized on the Eastern Front, because they 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 haven't been there, right? So he's saying, where's that come from? He says, and he says, it's because the officers are drawn from this national socialist, radicalized. They're guys who drew up, grew up in the 30s and who are 23 in 1943, who've only known Nazism, who, who also are being mobilized by the area bombing campaign, the attacks on the fatherland. And this is, this is where you get, I mean, you'll like this. Kesselring's conduct, the Ita- this is what he says, Kesselring's conduct to the Italian campaign has brought in the reputation of a defensive war genius. Yet given Italy's topography, the basic task was quite straightforward, certainly more so than if Kesselring had been facing Soviet tank armies on the Russian steppe. Yes, Ben. Couldn't agree more. Whatever his motives, Kesselring got the campaign he wanted. But if anything, the Allies were playing him rather than the other way around. The Gustav line, there's this description, uh, von Sanger Ecklin. Um, after the uh, uh, after the war, a battalion of the 15th Panzer Grenadier Division that came under massive Allied artillery bombardment on Casino, on the Gustav Line south of Rome. After some hours, a report arrived from the positions of the rear slope that the defenders were still holding the summit. A runner who was sent to investigate confirmed that no living troops, but only corpses, were still there. Right, and then that's uh, uh, then Shepard goes on to say, such a baleful spectacle as this begs the question of why Kesselring thought defending Italy was a good idea in the first place. The, 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 the terrain is the terrain is how you're doing it. That's how you're defending Italy. But you're also what? defending it really badly by shoving lots of penny packets in left, right, centre, splitting up your companies. Again, Fonseca Etlin saying, French North African soldiers, native mountain people led by superbly trained French staff officers, equipped modern American weapons and accoutrements. They're really difficult. They're brilliant. They're brilliant soldiers. But the yeah. Indian, uh, British Indian Army is the best. And um, uh, his division's intelligence concur. The Indian soldier is comfortably home among nature and they're therefore particularly able to exploit the conditions of the wooded and, mountain, wooded and mountainous country. Now, obviously, these German assessments of people are shading, you know, sh- are, are racially, like, uh, 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 
they have racial vocabulary and they're using but what he's admitting there is these people are well trained and they know what they're doing yeah well von Sanger's saying that in that that's part of the um um foreign military studies program yeah, and, that was done and by he's the saying that, and he's saying that the british are really good they're better than the americans the americans are so lazy and soft we could overrun him and just be playing at it but the prop but 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 his artillery fl- fires like our machine guns so that so that so and, and this book is really, really, it's really, really interesting about basically the, the, the fall off, the, the fall off of the old Prussian military class within the army. You'll do well if you're a Nazi. They're politically vetting people for officer jobs. So they're pushing through. Which is why in 1945, you've got lots of little mini Hitlers in all these little villages and towns going around hanging people who don't fight. Isn't that pa- amazing? I'm part sure. of the part of the you know the conundrum is why are the Germans motivated to hold on? Was because it's a different set of people. So it's a so so the idea yeah, that there's a man yeah, for yeah. man, you know, yeah, it's but, just uh, nonsense. Well, well, no, but let's say the pros fight the war in 1940, right? Which yes. is why they do yes. well in France. Yes, yes, yes. yes but yes, by yes. 1943, you've got the fanatics, and it's a fanatical government. So fanatics get with sharp elbows, find their way through, or even being sought out. And if you're fighting that form of defensive warfare, you're going to trust it to dynamic young Nazi guys who are going to say to the last round. They're stepping up the political education. And of course, they're into the political education because they're because you've got this mo- mobilised fanatical cadre coming through. God, that's fascinating, isn't it? And you think, of the, you think of the mirror image of this, which is that Colonel Blimp's worrying about the British officers all being a bit socialist and the Army Education Bureau like spreading socialism within the ranks of the army and what's going to happen next. It, it, it's, it, it's just, it's so interesting. And, and, you know, he go, he go, you know, he goes into, he goes into um, the, the, what they're, what the guys are writing home and the kind of entertainment they're getting and the kind of political stuff they're getting and all this, all basically all this stuff converging on a radicalized um, uh, officer corps who were not the officer corps of the, the old German army. And I think when you start thinking of it like that, but then if you also put in the area bombing campaign as a mobile, as the fatherland being. Well, you see that in all those, you know, those diaries that I was talking yeah. about, they're all, they're always worrying about what's happening at yeah. home and their loved ones and in Regensburg or wherever it might be. Yeah. And well, they might be. And then, you know, yeah. they're wandering around looking at all these smashed towns and villages in Italy and thinking, crikey, that's going to be yeah. us. Yeah, because you, you get you get solid national socialists appearing in routinely in army officers' personnel files. So routinely as to appear a catch-all phrase, he says. Officers in their personnel files are being assessed in terms of how well disposed they are towards Nazism and how tough and brave that therefore makes them. It, it's really, really, it's, 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 you know, Balk writes, you know, who's acting commander of the Gross Deutschland, April 43, says mental power resistance has to be repeatedly strengthened, particularly during rest periods. This will be achieved by the uniform orientation of commanders and troops in ideological issues, strengthening of soldierly qualities, braveness, bravery, toughness, the will to fight and obey, the recognition of the historical significance of the war, creation of a confident view of the military and political situation. So basically, you know, and, and the thing is you could look at... So he's again, also you saying could, you need people of the right mental... But you could mirror image you can mirror image that with, you know, what the British Army's morale crisis of 1943... The Germans have an answer to it. And of course, there's no way to make w- w- windows into men's souls. We don't know what these people are really thinking. But, you know, if you're 23 in 1943, yep. the only thing you've known is, you know, this political revolution that's happened in Germany and worldview revolution that's happened in Germany. So that must explain to some extent what's going on. But but Shepard really uses, Shepard uses it 
to, to look at the atrocities. He's saying the fighting's one thing. It's how the soldiers behave when they're dealing with partisans. Maybe the measure of their ideological commitment to Nazism. That's how you can read it. And, and in Italy, it's all these formations who have not been brutalized in the East who are, who are doing terrible things. So what does that tell you? And I think I, I found it so thought provoking and particularly after talking about Hamburg, because Hamburg, if, if the if area bombings origins are in how do we what, what are the effects we're going to have on a population? Because that is the origin, one of the origins of area bombing. You do it and all that sort of stuff. That's part of the picture. Well, one of the effects is it mobilizes people to fight to the last round because, you know, and you only have to see all those bombs with Coventry chalked on them. And, you know, those gliders on the way to Normandy with this is for Coventry, you know, you only have to see that. And 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 the questions of scale then come into that. I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's fascinating. Amazing how much, is, how much is, uh, has come out of that, things we've been looking at in 1943, isn't it? You know, from Kursk to... I mean, I, you know, again, you know, I've been studying Kursk, obviously, and reading about it for, for a long time. But actually, you know, you're 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 so right. The whole the whole thing was just completely pointless. I mean, really, what 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 were the Germans ever hoping to gain from that? Well, because because the, the other thing you've done is you've shortened the Soviets' lines as well. Yes, you've shortened your lines, but you've shortened theirs as well. Every so often, I come across these things in the in the in the, in the war where I'm looking at it, and it, it's, it's, invariably, it's it's something that the either the Japanese or the Germans do, where you just mm. think. That makes no sense whatsoever. And yeah. why haven't they thought about that? You know, it's the same with the with the kind of sort of going to the Caucasus in, in, in 1942. It makes no sense because why isn't there some contingency for what if the Soviets actually destroy all the world? Or how are we going to get the oil out? And it's well, literally, I've, I've never found anything which suggests that they've even considered it. The guy in charge is a fantasist. You see, these wars are caused by people who are living in a fantasy bubble where, where reality is... is yeah in very, very short supply. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll we'll see you all soon. We hope also that we will see you at We Have Ways Festival. Yes. The, 8th, the 10th of September, Black Pit Brewery near Silverstone, in uh, uh, the, the heart of the English countryside, um, where we've talks, a focus on 1943, tanks. We've now got two veterans some... coming. Oh, brilliant. We've got Jean Jam, the resistance hero. He was in the Amazing. resistance one, the Legion d'honneur, uh, age Amazing. seventeen, I think he was. And, and we've now got Richard Aldred, who was a tank driver in the Fifth Royal yeah. Inniskilling Dragoon Guards. Yeah, from Normandy all the way to the end of the war. I mean, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, incredible. Two very compass mentors, absolutely switched on people. Can't wait. That'd you know, brilliant. they're special people these days, and um, well, they always were, but but you know, particularly special now, there's so 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 few of them left. So that's exciting. Lots and lots of stuff going on. Well, look, um, thanks everyone for listening. We will see you all again very soon. We hope um, you've enjoyed this. Uh, thank you. Bye bye. Cheerio. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, 
Was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. 